Well, it is great to see all of you. It is great to welcome you and add my welcome to those that you've received from other people and other places. I'm looking very much forward to this time together with you in the Word of God together. And uh, we do thank you for coming. We welcome you as folks who are in our live service or maybe you're checking this out online. Welcome to you. Might be in our classic venue or on our moon campus, wherever this is finding you. Welcome to all of you. I need a little bit of help from you as we get started. And so on the count of three, if you saw part or all of Super Bowl, what is that, 55, 35, 55, 55? Um, if you saw part or all of it, I need a woo from you on three, all right? One, two, three. All right, I think that's pretty much all of you. Now, if you looked at it and watched some of it because you were interested in the commercials, maybe even mostly, I need a woo from you, one, two, three. All right. And how many of you basically just were a part of it because of the snacks? All right. I, I, knew, I knew there'd be some of those also. Now, I don't know how good your snacks were, but if you were watching it because you were looking for some great commercials, you might have been a little bit disappointed, weren't you? I know that I was kind of disappointed as I was watching some of the commercials. They just didn't seem to live up to at least some of the classics. Remember some of the, the classics like uh, this one? Where's the beef? Remember that one? That's a long, long time ago that one was, 1984. And you're dating yourself as I'm dating myself if you remember that one, okay? Or here's another one of my favorites was the Darth Vader ad with the, with the Volkswagen. Remember that? That was a very, that's already 10 years ago that that one was shown. And, uh, or how about this last one right here? In these areas, I mean, around here, right, you can't not mention Mean Joe Green and that Coca-Cola ad. That's also considered to be one of the all-time classics. That's 1984. No, 1980. That one goes way back also, all right? So there have been some awesome commercials, to be sure, but it's not just here. It's not just Super Bowl. There are a lot of other awesome commercials. In fact, there's a whole genre of commercials that are out there that we kind of laugh at. We kind of laugh at them. They're ones that feature some kind of cheesy dialogue and people like Ron Popeil and Billy Mays who are hawking things like Ginsu knives and OxyClean and the Pocket Fisherman. You know what I'm talking about, right? These infomercials where they, they go ahead and they, they say their bit and they put it out there and then they give you the great price and just when you think, okay, I'm going to have to make my decision, they say something else. They say, but wait, say it with me, there's more. But wait, there's more. We hear that all the time. Apparently, you've been watching some of these commercials. And even though we laugh at them, they're pretty effective. Apparently, one in three of us dial the number on the screen and go ahead and place your order because the infomercial market, the infomercial industry is more lucrative than the movie industry and the music industry combined. It's no wonder that operators are standing by because people have orders that they desperately apparently want to and need to place. It turns out that, but wait, there's more is a pretty effective tool when it comes to selling products. 
But you see, it's not just that. But wait, there's more is also very effective and also very powerful when it comes to our spiritual lives, where we are and where it is that we're going. That's at least what the Apostle Paul thinks, because we see him essentially saying to us in the passage we're looking at today, but wait, there's more. And that passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to get this started. And I invite you to turn there, find a spot, and find that spot in your Bible. There's a table of contents at the front. If you're not that familiar with where you find 2 Corinthians, you can search it on a Bible app or certainly on our Pathway app. You can find it there. We're starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There's just a few verses left in that chapter. Then we go on into chapter 5. So, I wonder... What are the challenges? As you just think about your life, what are some of the challenges that you're facing, that you're going through? Maybe in life, maybe in your family, maybe in your career. We all face challenges, and the fact of the matter is that some of those might be things that have just sort of come into your life recently, that you're just trying to figure out and learn how to process and deal with. Some of those might be things that have been a part of your life for, for a while now. And some of those might even be things where you're thinking to yourself, I think I'm just going to be stuck with this. I think this is going to be something that is just going to be characteristic of my life for the rest of of it. And in the midst of that, we can get discouraged and we can get despondent and we can despair. We can even get depressed. And to people in those sorts of circumstances and us, the Apostle Paul says to us, but wait, there's more. And if you find yourself in a place where it's like, I I, I just don't know. I'm kind of struggling. I'm trying to figure out. Wait, he says, there's more. He writes to encourage a group of people who were there in Corinth who'd been experiencing some of their own challenges and some of their own difficulties and their own problems. But he's not just writing some sort of theory. He's writing out of his experience because these are things that he's actually telling himself. And as we make our way through the passage, it's going to read like like Paul's encouraging himself. And we're going to hear how he's building himself up in, in the sense of being able to process his way through the troubles, the many troubles that had come his way. It's not just theory. This is life where he lived it. So it's a benefit for him. It's a benefit for these original readers. And it's a benefit for us, wherever it is that we might be today. This message, but wait, there's more. Don't get stuck where you are, but wait, there's more comes to us. And we see it in some transitions that Paul describes for us here in this passage. And those are the things I want to point out to you. Just a couple of these transitions. The first of them is this that we find here. It's from troubles to triumph. Don't get stuck in your troubles. Wait, there's more. There's a triumph that can be found. Where do you find that? Well, that's what this text has to tell us. Let me just read the close of chapter 4 for you, and I think you'll start to see where some of this triumph is spoken of and where it comes out. Starting in verse 16 then of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now it's clear as we read that, that Paul has eternity on his mind. He is asking himself, he's thinking about What's going to happen after I die? Do you ever do that? Do you ever stop to ask yourself, what's going to happen after I die? What is the afterlife going to be like? What's it going to look like? I think about those sorts of things 
kind of wonder, what's it, what, what's it going to be? What's going to, how's it going to be different? How's it going to be the same? Those sorts of things I ask myself. But this isn't just some sort of escape mechanism for Paul. He's not just thinking, oh man, I can't wait for that because he doesn't want to deal with where he is. Not at all. It's thinking about what is coming that is actually bolstering him to live fully and completely and even with joy in the context where he finds himself in the midst of the struggle and the difficulty. And so he writes to encourage us and also those who are in Corinth. Now, you can see that Paul is feeling his humanity and mortality here in verse 16. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away. He's saying, I'm wearing out. He says, I'm feeling my years in my body and in my bones. Any amens out there to that? Right? You kind of feel some of that in your body and in your bones as it comes along. I was at a doctor's appointment not all that long ago, and I was describing to the doctor a problem I was having actually with one of my toes, my big toe. And uh, it was sort of becoming stiff and, and losing some range of motion. And, and I described it to him, and, he, and I'm, a, I'm accustomed to the doctor saying, all right, well, here's what we can do to fix that. You can try these exercises, or you can put some of this cream on it, and hopefully that's going to… He didn't say any of that. He said, well, you know… You're not getting any younger. I think you're just going to have to learn to live with it, is what he told me. That is not what I wanted to hear. But it did remind me of this verse. Outwardly, we're wasting away. That's not where the verse ends. It goes on. He adds, yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. This is trouble to triumph. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is classic Paul. He's saying, my troubles are light and momentary. We've talked about Paul's troubles. Remember them? I wouldn't describe them as light and momentary. Paul's troubles were things like shipwreck and beating and imprisonment and facing death itself. That's what he's describing. I consider a heavy trouble being my phone dies and the charge is all the way in the other room. And he's like, no, these are just light troubles he's dealing with here. And the reason that he calls them light is because he's comparing them with the degree of blessing that is waiting in heaven. He's saying in comparison to the glories that are coming in heaven, that regardless of what it is that we're dealing with here, however difficult and challenging and problematic it might be. It's a light trouble in comparison with all the glory, all the joy that is going to be ours. Now, he's not trying to dismiss the significance of the things that we're going through. I'm not trying to dismiss in any way the significance of the problems and the pains and the struggles and the sufferings that you are experiencing yourself. But Paul is trying to give us perspective to try to wake us up a little bit because we can get so myopic. We can get so much just looking at our own situation that we lose track of actually the context in which we're living. Plus, he's trying to help us understand what the glories of heaven are really all about. That's why he describes them as light troubles. It's also why he describes them as being momentary. Because even if your trouble would last a hundred years in comparison to eternity, that's but a moment. So he wraps up this little section. We just read it a moment ago, but this is the end of chapter 4. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. In other, in other words, the future in heaven and what is coming, since what is seen is temporary. It's light. It's momentary. It's temporary. But what is unseen is eternal, forever. Paul doesn't want us to get bogged down with our present situation, what it might be, but, but to keep eternity in view because it's a reminder that God is providing for us now and also for forever. Sure, things can get tough. Paul says, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more to look forward to. That our troubles are turned to triumph. That's the first transition. There's another transition that comes here, and it's one that I'm calling, as chapter 5 gets started, I'm calling burdens to bods. All right? Burdens to bods. Here again, to people who have been experiencing hardship and burden and the discouragement that comes along with it, Paul says, say it with me, but wait, there's more. That's right. He says it again. He's still talking about eternity, but instead of just now mentioning it as a general glory that is out there, he speaks to a particular blessing that we're going to experience. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He writes, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. The metaphor Paul is using here of a building kind of makes it sound like he's talking about that home that God has gone to prepare for us that's spoken of in John 14 for when we die and go to heaven. Kind of sounds like he's talking about that. That's not what he's talking about. When he talks about this sort of earthly tent, or he talks about this building, it's not like a, a structure. He's using it to describe our bods, if you will, our bodies is what he's talking about. That's what he means when he refers to the earthly tent we live in. Our bodies are our earthly tent. So, if it's not too personal, what's the condition of your tent, right? What's the condition of your tent? See, there's a time in our lives when we sort of think our tent looks a little bit like this one, well cared for on the inside and the outside, and it's pulled taut and tight in all the right places, right? That's kind of what we think. But as the years pile on, pretty soon our tent really looks a little bit more like this, right? Yeah, it's sagging a little bit here and there, and, and there are some blemishes, and it's got some, some I don't know, <laughs> some kind of craggly, lumpy underside there going on. And yes, we've tried to fix it, but it's not ever going to be like new again. See, we've, we've been there, most of us, and we know what this is talking about. We don't like it when we think about that process happening. And Paul basically says to us, well, hey, don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. Because eventually, it's going to be turned to something better than it was at the beginning, better than it was at your best moment, as awesome as you were then, better still. When's that happening? He says, at the resurrection, it's going to take place. Paul talks about this more as he goes on, then picking up in verse 1 again. It says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We're longing for that new body, he's saying, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. 
For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, by the new. He's talking about the desire to be free of the present burden, whether that would be spiritual, whether that would be physical, and get to that point of the perfected state. Verse 5, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. When Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection, He promised that His Holy Spirit would come and indwell believers. And that's what's happened. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've bowed your knee to Christ, and you've come into relationship with Him, the Holy Spirit is present in your life. It's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We have Christ, we have God's presence with us through the Spirit so that He leads us and He guides us and He directs us and He, he pricks our conscience and He gives us gifts and, and, and abilities and the fruit of the Spirit. It's all ours. It's not as perfect as will be one day, but it's something. It's a deposit toward what ultimately is going to be our condition is what he's talking about here. So, the question comes up, then just, will, just what will those future bods look like or be like? Well, I think the best description of that actually comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sometimes we call it the resurrection chapter, beginning in verse 35, where it describes for us what those bodies are going to be like. As where our earthly bodies are subject to death, our heavenly bodies will never die, never face death ever again once we are in heaven. As where our earthly bodies are subject to decay and falling apart or being corruptible, it says in the Scriptures that our heavenly bodies are going to be incorruptible. They will never decay. They will never fall apart. As where our earthly bodies are prone to weakness, our heavenly bodies are characterized by strength. Basically, everything that is a result of sin, as a result of the fall of, of, the fall of mankind, all of the sin and the problem and the decay, all of that is going to be done away with. We will never have to fear or worry about that or deal with that ever again. It's going to be a perfect body that is going to be ours. Anybody looking forward to that? I hope so. Certainly hope so. And what about our appearance? Will we look like we do now? Good question. Well, we've already said that it's a perfected body, so looking out, I'm certainly thinking that some of you are going to be changed a lot. I'm not going to mention any names, but there are a couple of guys a few aisles up here, a few rows up here, who just might be, you know, I'm not going to bring it up. All right, you make your own conclusions, all right? That's what he says, but here's the thing. Even though they're going to be perfected, and we know we're far from perfected now, there might not be that much of a difference in terms of appearance. Why do I say that? Well, we know that Jesus had a resurrected body when He came out of the grave, and He walked around, and people recognized Him. Most everybody, they're just those couple of guys on the Emmaus Road who, who didn't quite recognize. Everybody else did. And we know that he had the marks of the nails in his hands and in his feet still in his resurrected body, which leads a lot of people to believe that our resurrected body is going to be perfect but still have resemblance toward what we look like today so that there might be that sort of recognition then another question that's prompted by this text is when exactly do we get that new body? Well, the Scriptures say we get the new body at our 
resurrection. We get the new body at our resurrection. When does that happen? It happens when Jesus comes back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means those who know Jesus, who've already died, they'll rise first in the resurrection. After that, we who are still alive and are left, if we happen to be alive when Jesus comes back, are caught up together with those who have been resurrected in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. So, that begs the question then, what happens between the time that we die, if the Lord tarries and we die first before He comes back, what happens between when we die and when the resurrection takes place? This is a period of time that is typically referred to as the intermediate state. And there are different things that are suggested, but the Scriptures are actually pretty clear on what this has to say. Some of the things that are suggested, some people say, well, of course, when we die, our soul is separated from our body. That is true. Body goes into the ground, soul does not. Our soul continues. Some people say, well, the soul just ceased to exist at that point. It's just over. It's done. Other people say, well, no. I mean, the Scriptures are clear that, that we'll have this ultimate eternity with God, so our soul doesn't disappear. Some people say, our soul just goes to sleep, and it just sleeps until Jesus comes back, and then He wakes us up, and we go then on into eternity. We get that new body at that point. Again, that's not what the Scriptures say, though. We have to stick with what we're actually told. There are a couple of things that might be said against those points of view. One of those has to do with the thief on the cross. It seems the thief on the cross is used to sort of explain all sorts of things, but it certainly does apply in this situation. The thief on the cross was next to Jesus as Jesus died, and he ends up putting his faith at that last moment in Christ, and Jesus says, today, I think I have it here for you, today you will be with me in paradise. That doesn't sound like he's saying to the thief, today we're going to put you away for a while, and then after thousands of years we're going to go ahead and bring you back out. That's not what that's saying. Today you'll be with me, conscious experience with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi these words. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. I desire to depart and be with Christ. His full expectation is that he's going to go when that time comes and have a conscious experience with Jesus at the moment in this intermediate state. Not that his soul is going to fall asleep for at least a couple thousand years now, and then one day he'll wake me up. That's not at all what we are reading. And even our own text that we come to here next has something to say about this. It's verse 6 and following of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, in other words, while we're here on earth, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
These verses tell us a couple important things about the intermediate state. One is that Paul is saying that being at home with the Lord is taking place while we're apart from the body. As soon as we leave the body, we die. We're at home with the Lord, he's saying. All right? He's highlighting the fact, that highlights the fact that there's this period of time between when we die and when we're resurrected or when we get the resurrected body. The intermediate state is a real thing, he's saying. The other is that it's Paul's preference to be at home with the Lord. It hardly seems likely that Paul would be longing to leave a prosperous ministry, one that is, is doing great things for the Lord, people are coming to faith, and say, what I'd really rather have is to be put on ice for a couple of thousand years while God does His thing and then be woken up. That's not what he's talking about. That's clearly not how he understands this circumstance to be. There's every reason to believe that there's a time coming when we will die, when our soul will go to be with the Lord in conscious, perfect, wonderful experience, waiting for our resurrected body that is going to then be better yet still. A lot of times there's confusion about that, so I hope that's helpful. There is so much to look forward to as we experience this transition from burdens to bods, as well as from troubles to triumph. But so what, okay? So there's something great that's coming eventually. Wonderful. Thanks, Paul. But what's that mean for now? Glad you asked, because he addresses that. And he says, essentially, so live to please God. What are you supposed to do now? Live to please God. Look at verse 9. So we make it our goal to please Him. He said, because of all of this, we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Because of the blessings God has poured into our lives through the cross, through the forgiveness of sin, through the promise of life, we should do everything in our power to be living our lives in such a way that brings pleasure, honor, glory to God living in ways that are in keeping with obedience to what He has called us to do. It's simply what we should do out of gratitude, if no other reason. Paul says, you know what? I bet some of you aren't motivated enough, are you? He says, so let me give you some more motivation. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is done as due us for the things done while in the body, while on earth, whether good or bad. <clears throat> there are a couple of major future judgments that are coming that sometimes people get a little bit confused about. And so, let me just lay them out for you quickly here. One of those is referred to as the great white throne judgment. This is a judgment that's going to happen essentially at the end of time when sometimes it's referred to as the Lamb's Book of Life is opened and if an individual's name is not written there in the book of life because they have come to the place where they put their hope and trust in Christ, if it's not there, then they are sentenced, essentially cast to a life of eternity separated from God. In some places, it talks about being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That happens at the great white throne judgment. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to sweat that at all because you won't be there. Because through the work of Jesus on the cross and through you bowing your knee to Christ and putting, or putting your trust in Him and receiving His salvation, 
you're given His righteousness. And so you don't need to fear ever the great white throne. If you haven't done that, you do, because that is where you will stand one day. The great white throne judgment is not what's being identified or spoken of here by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. That's not what he's talking about. The judgment mentioned in our verse is for believers whose works are going to be examined, the works that we did while in this life, whether good or bad. The motives behind the things that we have done are going to be examined, and we are going to be rewarded, as it were, for what we have done while in this life. It's a very real thing, and it's coming. It's referred to as the judgment seat of Christ. It's given that name because it's a translation of the Greek word bema. Bema is a, a well-known fixture of every ancient city. A bema was a raised platform that a Roman ruler would sit on, and people would bring cases to him, and he'd essentially be the judge there, and that's where he would execute the judgment, and he'd, he'd give out decrees, or he'd give out sentences to people based on the matters that were brought to him. It was also a place, because of its elevated platform-like situation, that someone who might have been the winner of an athletic contest would come, and, and the crown would be, the laurel wreath would be placed on their head as a way to identify them publicly before everybody. Here is the Bema seat in Corinth. You can go there today and see this. This is basically a modern-day picture, and uh, this is what it looked like, a raised platform where those things took place. It says that then, Paul says, this is the judgment seat of Christ, which suggests to us that it's probably a public situation that's going on. It says that all are going to gather before the judgment seat, before the Bema seat of Christ. And if that sounds ominous to you, it should. Now, not to the point to bring you great fear, though that might be how you feel in the moment, but rather Paul is telling us this so that we might be prepared because we have the opportunity in our life right now as it is to prepare ourselves for that day when it's going to come, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some people think, well, look, if I already took care of my salvation, I prayed to receive Jesus, I'm good to go. I don't need to worry about what happens or what I do or how I live. I can live however I want. I'm already in heaven, so it doesn't really matter. Well, there's no basis in the Scriptures that should give you that sort of confidence or that sort of move in a direction apart from what God is clearly calling us to in terms of obedience, because we will one day stand and all of those things that we have done in the body, whether good or bad, are going to be revealed, and God is going to respond accordingly. Again, not for salvation, but for the rewards that He chooses to give, for what our eternity is going to be like from that moment going forward. So, Paul says, live to please God. When life gets difficult, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the trouble and the burdens that we are going through that we lose perspective. Because when those circumstances come upon us, especially when things get particularly difficult, that just becomes the lens pretty much through, what, through which we see everything. And it can be very difficult to make wise decisions 
or healthy choices because our minds are so caught up in what's going on, in the situation that we find ourselves in. We can find ourselves in discouragement and in despair, and, and that's what's going on. But Paul says to us these words, why? So that we might step back, so that we might get a bigger picture so that we might get an accurate perspective of all of what's going on. And so he says to us in the midst of our trouble, but wait, there's more. Let's be sure that we see the whole thing he essentially is saying to us here. He reminds us of the incredible blessings that are in store for those who know Jesus. He says that when we can see that, we can see our circumstances, our troubles as being light and momentary, because of what we understand the whole plan and purpose of God is all about. Again, this isn't so that we might dismiss. He's not trying to suggest that the problems that you're going through are no big deal. He understands that they are. He went through them himself, but in the midst of it, he calls them light and momentary because he stepped back to see the full plan, the full purpose of God, and it encourages him for the future but it also gives him the courage to continue to live in the moment because he knows that God is in charge, that God is in control, and that he's going to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he says, but wait, there's more. If you're tempted to get snowed under by the circumstances of life, remember this passage. Remember this encouragement from Paul, but wait, there's more. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, there's so many circumstances that come our way that we face that are difficult and challenging and, and problematic, and, and it's so easy just to get swamped by them. Although some of us might have walked in today just with the, the heaviness of that burden and that weight and we've been discouraged and maybe even despairing and depressed, despondent, or maybe not to that point, but still, still feeling how it's, it's clouding every decision and every circumstance and in every moment. But I just pray that you would help us to take on the perspective of Paul, that we would recognize, but wait, there's more that God has every, that you have every circumstance of life cared for. Some of that has to do with what is coming that we can look at and we can celebrate and, and we can just be encouraged by the fact that there's so much in store. Encouraged by the fact that we know people, friends, relatives, parents, children perhaps who've gone to experience that already. It's not just a word for then, it's a word for now. Because of what is coming, because of what we can trust you for for the future, we can trust you in the moment. So Lord, I would just pray that you would help us to take on a perspective which is fully orbed, which fully wrestles with the completion of who you are, what you've done, what you're doing. Thank you that we can see it in one like Paul who's dealt with things every bit as difficult as anything that we're facing. And he's the one who brings us 
the word, but wait, there's more. If he can find encouragement, we can too. Lord, I pray that our spirits would be lifted as we consider what it is that Paul is telling us here. Not just something that was a reality for him or a reality for the church in Corinth, but a reality for us. Lord, encourage us today with the fact that indeed in you there's more to come. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.